happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm a podcast. Wait, do I, is there something Wait, I should look at? Or not... are you just gonna, you're going to tell no. me things, right? Uh, geez, we already botched this introduction comprehensively. Oh, Between you and me, Shireen, oh. we really, we really. That was unfortunately Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards podcast. That's not we're me. Listening to, doing a I'm, weird voice. I'm someone else. Don't. Who are don't you judge today? Me. I don't know. I'm talking to Shireen. Is who I am. Hello, Giant Shireen. Here. And I'm Shireen. Hi, how are, everyone. How are you? I am Shireen. I'm I'm well, to be honest, but I feel guilty saying that because um, relatively, I'm usually bad. But I think yeah. it's a I'm I'm a better bad than usual. You know? Oh, or, that's good. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's always good um, to be a better bad than usual. And it's really gloomy in L.A., and that makes me thrive. I love gloomy oh, weather. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I love it when L.A. feels like the Pacific Northwest briefly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't happen me. often. You get me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Shireen, how do you feel about trains? Uh, <laughs> they're fun. That's an interesting and, okay. way to introduce I love episode. to travel. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how, how do you feel about so you like you like comfortable trains, right? Like, you know, trains with cabins, sleeper cars, all that sort of stuff, the trains you can sit on and enjoy. I like all trains. I think okay. they're very impressive and uh yeah, if you if you really think about it, they're a, a feat that man made. You know what I mean? They they're pretty cool. Now, how do you feel about workers being gunned down? Oh. Because they are trying to get paid fairly for helping to make trains. Bad. I feel bad about you that. You feel bad about that. Oh, yeah. okay. So this might not be a super happy episode. Well, <laughs> that's, that's frustrating. the episode like that? <laughs> it, it's, it's great. It's great. I'm very good at my job. Uh, the working title I have for this, this episode, Shireen, is Let's Talk About the Pullman Strike, comma, Cocksuckers. And I don't know why mm. I was so aggressive when I was writing the title to this. Um, 
but but I never edited it, and now it's it's in there. Sophie, can um, we make yeah. this the title of the episode? If can we make- put cocksuckers in Spotify? I don't know. There's certain apps that reject the curse words. Oh, really? Yeah, or and it makes I didn't know that. and it makes it like like it blocks it for searching things. But in my heart, that's the title. Yeah, I feel like if Come Town is fine. Oh my God, you're let's right. Let's talk about the Pullman Strike cocksuckers is also okay. I mean, I'm willing to give it a shot if it would make you happy. Yeah, I, I think I would like to. You're um, gonna give it a shot on the episode that I guest on, and my it might yeah. be gone forever. Mm-hmm. Well, it might be. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll change the title. Show, it'll show up on a couple. It'll apps. be an artifact. In we like we can change years. the title to "Let's Talk About the Pullman Strike Knob Gobblers." Okay, yeah, <laughs> they're not going to catch. They're not going to catch that at all. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. So today, Shireen, mm-hmm. Lonnie Eunice, today. Mm-hmm. We're going to learn about George Pullman, a guy who sucked so bad that workers who didn't even work for him quit working to protest how shitty a boss he was. Wow. Like, that's the level of bad boss. Like, other people who had nothing to do with this guy quit working to protest how much he sucked. Now, like most great labor stories, the story of the Pullman strike has a sad ending and a lot more racism than you'd hope. But that's no excuse not to talk about this huge piece of shit, George Mortimer Pullman. He was born in 1831 in Brockton, New York. His dad, James Lewis, known as Lewis, was a farmer who became a carpenter because the money was much better. The family seems to have been upwardly mobile for the time, uh, but firmly working class. George was expected to labor from a young age. Now, Brockton had a general store owned by his mom's uncle, and after he finished fourth grade, it was decided that he would drop out and work there for about $40 a month, Hmm. uh, which is a pretty good salary for the time. Again, his family's comfortable. Mm -hmm. That same year, his parents left him and his two brothers behind to move to Albion, New Jersey, so his dad could work on widening the Erie Canal. Uh, and. Yeah, yeah, this was this was like a, a whole big deal here. And George is 14 when the effort starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have fewer of his early recollections than I'd prefer, so it's hard to say how this affected him. But the move was great for his father's career. Lewis Pullman developed a method of moving a building off of its old foundations and onto a new one because they had to, to widen this canal, there was like s- stuff built up against the canal that they had to lift up and move so that wow. they could widen the canal. It was like this whole, they're doing this in like the... The 18, late 1840s, I think, wow. is kind of when the effort gets really underway. That's um, impressive. See, humans yeah. can be impressive sometimes. It, it's really cool because, like, again, people are, there's, they don't have technology then. Like, yeah. everything sucks. Uh, you have so to be innovative or They have gonna, to be innovative, yeah. yeah. So the, the system that Lewis Pullman develops to move buildings uses, like, screw jacks and this mm-hmm. special machine that he's invented. In, it's this whole wild deal. Um, and so since a lot of buildings needed to be moved to expand the Erie Canal, this was a major boon for family finances. In 1848, three years after three years of working at his family store, George was 17, and he was missing his parents, who were still off building the Erie Canal. So he joins, moves to Albion, New York, joins his family, and he gets a job at what is now the family business, moving buildings so that a canal can be wider. Hmm. The next five years were peacefully lucrative for both him and his family, before his father died in 1853, leaving George Pullman 
the heir to the business at age 22. Uh, he had brothers, but they'd started another business, and George had been working with his dad, so he was the obvious choice. His first big contract is from the state of New York. They wanted 20 buildings, most of which were warehouses, moved out of the way of the widening canal. Uh, this made a decent amount of money, but it was not the kind of thing that could last forever. New York only had so many additional buildings that were in the way of where the canal was getting expanded to, and eventually there was going to be no more money in that. Uh, the economy hit a major recession in the mid-1850s, and George was forced to look outside of New York for revenue. He found it in Chicago, a city that by 1857 was starting to reap the consequences of trying to make too much Chicago way too fast. Mm. There was a period of time in which we had a Chicago, and everybody was so excited about it that they were like, we gotta keep making more Chicago! And then they built way too much Chicago. And like, they couldn't, they couldn't, like, so Chicago is built on a swamp, like a, right. a lot of places. Um, and it was, uh, uh, like, they didn't, they didn't build, like, they, they had no real infrastructure, um, mm -hmm. like, because this thing just, like, blew up so quickly. Um, back at the time, in, like, the mid-1800s, it's kind of a cluster of buildings about four feet above Lake Michigan um, mm -hmm. that nobody really planned out all that well. So as it gets bigger, it's flooding constantly. Sewage oh, is just, like, washing into houses and streets all the time. Um, like, it was just, it, there never should have been large numbers of people there. It was kind of like... A, a fucking swamp and they just they they made too much chicago too fast you know it's a classic story Wait, so uh, they were, what's, were they making chicago because they were like really excited about it or because they had to and the people there was like the population thing i think those, yeah those i mean things right i think there's a couple of different things but yeah mm -hmm. it was just it was the place to be for a while you know the westward mm -hmm. expansion is like really in full swing at this period of time mm -hmm. chicago's uh you know kind of in the mid middle of the country um mm -hmm. and it yeah the, they it's just becoming they a just, city i guess it's yeah. becoming a central city yeah yeah, and it's a problem. And to kind of illustrate what a problem it was, I want to quote from a, pa a passage from the hilariously named website, Enjoy Illinois! <laughs> quote, the streets turned to mud, stranding horses, carriages, and humans alike. Pools of standing water formed all over the city. The environment caused hygiene and health problems, including an 1854 cholera outbreak which killed one in 20 residents. The yeah. marsh on which the city was built was trying to claim back its territory. After a number of failed attempts to fix the problem, including planking the streets with wood, the city decided that, only, that the only long-term solution was to install a sewer and stormwater system. But in Chicago, that was no easy feat. Sewers need to go underground ground and they drained down chicago was barely above the water table and underground sewers couldn't work at that level so they got this issue yeah. they they they've it suddenly built like, a lot of chicago yeah. shits literal shits flooding everywhere and they need yeah. to build sewers but chicago's barely above the water you know it just you, sounds you, like you nature is space. fighting back we were never meant to be there we were know never know meant I mean? to have a chicago you know yeah, I, I think that's there. fair you know no. i like it's just it doesn't want us there nature's fighting back it does it, it was yeah I, there's, a, there's a category of cities in the United States, and not just in the United States, but specifically in the United States, there's a category of cities that, like, are direct affronts to God. Phoenix is another <laughs> direct affront to God. Like, if we, we built Phoenix, Arizona to spit in the eye of the Almighty. It never, people were never supposed to live there no, in any no. kind of quantity. No. Um, and it's the same thing with Chicago. I see. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Yeah. I, Hit I back, agree Chicago. with you. Uh, mm -hmm. Phoenix, uh, yeah. I don't Chicago, know how people are there right all now. All of Florida. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> we were thinking with that shit. Like, uh, hmm. Damn. So, Chicago's, you know, 
they're, they're trying to figure out how to get a sewer built in a city that is like almost uniquely unsuited to having traditional sewers. Mm-hmm. And rather than admit that the present location of Chicago wasn't a front to God, they opted to raise every single building and street in town by an average height of six feet. They decided we can't. Excuse me. Shit's flooding everywhere. We can't build a, a normal underground sewer here. So instead of moving, let's lift the entire city up by six feet. That is so bonkers. I, it's I, fucking I, amazing. What? I, uh,. The last thing I, I ever thought you would say, I thought they were going to just build them above ground and then make Chicago worse. But that's 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 intense to yeah. just lift a city. We, we really do think we're God. It's it's amazing. I, I it, weirdly enough, like the, one of the things this reminds me of is a story from the Roman Empire of one of Caesar's mm-hmm. conquests. He was laying siege to this Gallic city called Elysia. And the way the Romans would siege a city is they would build a wall around the entire city. So they could basically like shoot down into the town and like starve it out, essentially. And while they're doing this, this huge Gallic army that outnumbers them like five, ten to one comes up and attacks the Roman army. And rather than like break off and retreat, they just build a second wall around themselves. And so they have one big wall around them and one big wall around the city. It's just this like, yeah, no, we, we, we can, we can just solve all of our problems by, by engineering, by building huge things. Like never, mm-hmm. never, it's amazing. I, it, it's, it's, but that's how they got to the problem. You know that what is I mean? how they got to the problem. Like, but in this case, this is not working. You know what I mean? Why? Bu- I just, yeah. Well, the thing is, though, it did work for the Romans. Caesar won that battle and it worked in Chicago because they did lift every goddamn building in the city up by six. Some were raised by as much as 14 feet. OK, maybe um, I'm dumb. I, how does how is that literally physically possible? Like, they've got this like screw jack winch kind of thing system that just sort of like lifts shit up. And wow. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's it's. It's a whole thing. You can find there's like, it's very well documented. You know, this was in the the mid 1800s. So they had people did like talk about how they were doing it. It's not a mystery. Um, And it also provided the fact that they're lifting the entire city up six feet by the height of a dude, basically um, that, that gives the city an opportunity to rebrand because it again, had kind of been like this frontier ramshackle town and the people who were in charge of things at the time were able to use this to move buildings that didn't look nice to the edges of the city and Mm. kind of reorganize Chicago so that when everything was lifted it looked the way they wanted to like so a nice city. it was city. like redlining yeah. but not. Yeah. 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 No I mean kind of was. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of instead course. Of the, instead of moving the lines you're moving the actual buildings. Yeah you could just like move all the buildings around. <laughs> yeah. Um, now George's firm was not the only one involved in raising the city. He was actually one of a handful of firms all technically competing with each other but they all kind of agreed to work together to determine who got which bids and to maximize their profitability. It was like price fixing. I don't know if that mm-hmm. was illegal at the time. I think it kind of is now but they, they, they all these different firms including George's operate in a cartel in order to get as much money to lift the city of Chicago up as they possibly can. Mm. And George is not a small player in this, but he's not a particularly large one either. Um, He had dreams of more. Um, You know, this is a successful business. He's making a comfortable living, but that was not enough for George Pullman. Um, And kind of after this, he winds up on a a train ride from Buffalo to Westfield, or during this, he winds up on a train ride from Buffalo to Westfield, (laughs) New York to negotiate. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is where the trains come in so he's on a train ride for a business Mm -hmm. meeting and 
it, it's it train rides sucked back then yeah. like that's kind yeah. of something that i it, i didn't wasn't really aware of before this they were they didn't have trains that were meant to be like in any way comfortable like mm-hmm. you could get on one but there was no like that kind of romantic vision of like the fancy the beautiful uh, pointed train car mm-hmm. with a bar and none of that existed yet it was <laughs> Awful. And to illustrate how awful it was, I want to quote from a write-up by Richard Schneeroff from Indiana State University for the Northern Illinois University Digital Library. Quote, as railroad mileages tripled between 1850 and 1860, the uncomfortable conditions passengers endured on trips longer than a few hours became intolerable. Passenger cars were not built to cushion jolts. Windows constantly rattled. In the winter, wood-burning stoves could fill the cars with smoke and caused accidents. And in the summer, riders sweltered. It took three and a half days to travel from Chicago to New York, and a typical traveler resorted to hotels at night. The need for a sleeping car was widely understood, but at the time, none were satisfactory. In 1858, Pullman began renovating existing sleeping cars for the Chicago and Alton Railroad. Eventually, he established a small crew and began building cars from scratch. In 1864, his crew built the classic sleeping car he called the Pioneer. With brocaded fabrics, handcrafted window and door frames, plush red carpets, and richly ornamented paneling, the Pioneer was a study in luxury. It was also the turning point in Pullman's rise to success. Pullman's luxurious sleeping car appealed to America's fast growing wealthy class, hungry for status and a new middle class that aspired to the same outward markers of social standing. Pullman shrewdly took advantage of this in his marketing strategy, which relied on quality of service and prestige rather than low prices. So he offers for the first time, really not even just like first class, but just a train ride that wouldn't make you want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hugely successful. Trains are blowing yeah. up at this point, and he's the first guy to figure out how to make you want to be on a train. You know? Yeah, very innovative. Again, like his father, mm-hmm. I guess, was also innovative. It's in yeah, they're, something they're in smart the men. Yeah, yeah, he he gets he understands you know that this is a, an unfilled need, and he fills yeah. it ably. I think also like if you don't, maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. I don't care. I think if you don't come for money, money. Uh, you understand more what the people need and want. It's the same reason guy, you, guys like Bezos and, and and Bill Gates. I know there are people who would like consider them rich, but they're they're upper middle class, and so it's it's not enough money that they never had to do anything. Like they were going to need to find out something to do, mm-hmm. but it's enough money that they are able to like pursue their dreams from an early age like George's mm-hmm. right like he's yeah. he's, wor- he's he's paid well to work at this family shop at 17 he's able to very easily go follow his dad and you know get involved in this new business it's uh yeah so he's right working now, he's class like but enough 20s. money that yeah right yeah early he's 20s. in his early 20s right now mid, mid to late 20s I think very by now impressive. very impressive um and this is a big hit. So he has this, his 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 train business is successful, but it's not as big as as George wants to be. Like he's he's doing very well. He's probably what you'd call wealthy, but he's not like a massive industrial magnate. Um, and he's he's he feels uncertain. At, like he he doesn't really believe that his business can expand all that much. He kind of feels mm-hmm. like, well, I found a profitable niche, but that's all it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So he starts looking for other ways to make money. By the late 1850s, the Pikes Peak Gold Rush was well under 
underway in Chicago or Colorado, not Chicago. Uh, George decided to travel there and see if he might be able to shortcut the route to wealth and power by striking it rich. The Pullman Museum writes that in short order, quote, Pullman realized that the real money in a gold rush is made by supplying other fortune hunters. So he decides very quickly, it's fucking not worth it to go panning for gold, but I can sell shit to the people panning for gold. And he forms a company to do this, moving freight and crushing ore. And when that did well, he bought 1,600 acres near Central City, Colorado. And they turned it, he turns this into a truck stop, basically, like the Gilded Age equivalent of a truck stop. He knows a ton of people are passing in and out of this specific area. Um, they're going to a place that's, that's real primitive, no amenities whatsoever. Um, so they're going to want something that they can head to on their way in and out in order to, like, get drunk and eat good food and sleep in a comfortable bed. So he builds he builds this big truck stop. And for a while, he's kind of on this path of, you know, getting forming little businesses here and there as he sees needs. Um, and I don't it doesn't look initially like his train business is going to be huge. But the good news is that from, you know, if your job is making trains more comfortable, then the 1850s is a little bit early for that to be a big mm. business. But mm-hmm. the 1860s. That's the fucking like, you know, that's where yeah. you're going to make money. Okay. Um, you just have to stick around long enough for to make yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. And the Civil War does a lot for this, right? Trains mm. are a huge part of why the union wins. Yeah. Um, and the Civil War is furthermore helpful to his business because on April 15th, 1865, a dude shot Abraham Lincoln right in his head. Now, this was widely seen as terrible for Honest Abe uh, and in the wake of a devastating war. Uh, like people needed a proper send off for a wartime president, right? Like mm-hmm. th- this beloved president gets killed. Everybody's real fucking sad. There's just been a big war. Trains are b- more uh, famous and like prominent mm-hmm. than ever. And George looks at the president's death and sees opportunity. Of course um, he does. So, Let's capitalize yeah. on this tragedy. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's got some friends in high places and he starts talking to them and being like, Hey, you got to move that president's dead ass body. I got these real fancy sleeves. Cars. You can't just stick his corpse in like a shitty wow. car. You got to put him in something nice, right? Um, he has a point. You know he has I mean? a point, right? Exactly. People don't want to see you like, the, yeah. like you open it and it's like what you'd stick like a bunch of logs into or yeah. something. There's just a fucking also, coffin even, sliding around. Exactly. And even if they didn't want to, if someone yeah. presented that and then they said no, that's pretty shitty. Like that's that's an asshole move, you know. If you're yeah. presented with a nicer option, then you just so, put Abraham Lincoln in a an oven. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. very yeah, it's very smart of him to just be yeah. like, yeah, when I'll, I'll give him one of my uh, one of my one of my nice cars to mm-hmm. drive the president's dead ass body around in, yeah. um, and this actually posed a significant logistical hurdle because a lot of train stations uh, and platforms and bridges weren't wide enough to 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 take the car that he had. It can only travel on some tracks, mm-hmm. and so they get like the government widens a bunch of like station platforms and bridges which actually makes his business even more profitable because wow. now his cars can go more places the parallel um, of the canal widening yeah and this wi- wow george Full pullman circle. a man made great by widening <laughs> it, it's always cyclical life mm-hmm. is cyclical it's like flat circle whatever you know what i mean yeah. it all comes back to and a flat circle pretty wide it is pretty wide pretty wide yeah, it's pretty you wide. know what else is pretty wide shireen uh, I know you're gonna say Raytheon or some shit. I just don't oh, know. Oh, now have anything. The, the variety of products Raytheon makes very wide. <laughs> if you need a missile guidance chip for a Hellfire missile, 
Raytheon's got you. If you need a, a, a software to help target for a, a, an assassin drone, Raytheon's got you. Yeah. If you need to not have any kind of targeting whatsoever because you're just going to carpet bomb an area, Raytheon can make the detonators for that carpet bombing. Whatever you need from Raytheon, as long as it involves killing people from the sky, Raytheon can do. I'm so happy that that's was a such true a fact. long plug. Yeah, well. <laughs> All right, let's go to the ads that paid us. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. 
and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. And the Lincoln's Corpse Engine train would go down in history as one of the most popular trains of all time, slightly underneath the Festival Express. Ulysses Simpson Grant praised George Pullman for giving a dead man a nice corpse box. After the whole dead person business was concluded, the train car was put on display so that people could gawk at it. I like you said Pull- that it's a corpse box. I, it is a corpse box. It's a nice like, corpse box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess that's the... Before coffins, I mean, they mm-hmm. probably already had coffins, but I'm sure I just, he was in a coffin. Corpse, yeah. corpse box is mm-hmm. a phrase I wasn't uh, familiar with until right now, and it that's me. I'm going to start up another like it's going to be like one of those mattress businesses mm-hmm. uh, that ships mattresses to you, but it, it'll ship cheap coffins, and we'll call it corpse box. Yeah, you got something going there. Yeah, yeah. got to have a box possible. for corpses. Yeah, you're rich. You never know when you're going to wind up with a corpse. Yeah, exactly. Just follow your dreams, Robert. Follow your Mm -hmm. dreams. Yep. That's going to take me out of this filthy podcasting business. (laughs) Well, honestly, you're right, though. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're able to have the luxury to do anything you want to do, you will do it and find a way to make it good. If you're like Mm -hmm. smart, like decently intelligent. You know what I mean? I think that's all it needs. Like luck and uh, basic understanding of humanity or like human instinct or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, you you like the people who are most successful under our system are uh, there's a certain level of money that they have. But also, if you go above that level, I think your odds of doing anything on your own that that change the world actually start to drop. Like Mm. you don't tend to hear about like waltons or whatever like they perpetuate systems but it's a guy like jeff bezos who 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 grows right. up very comfortable but not with billions of dollars who's gonna yeah. actually anyway whatever yeah. Um, yeah he has no like uh concept of what uh people are going through or what they need or whatever i mean i was just i mean this is everyone talks about this but having enough money to like really improve the lives of billions of people or like help with world hunger and, and homelessness and everything and still having left over and not doing anything about it, it blows my mind, you know? And well, all rich people are like that, pretty, or yeah, billionaires, pretty This much. is actually where the story is building a bit. Um, Great. Great. Fuck billionaires. So... Lincoln's death, incredible for George Pullman. And he takes all of the great PR that comes in the wake of this. And he approaches several wealthy businessmen with the same pitch. I need more investment money because I want to build enough cars to sell luxury rides everywhere, right? I want everyone to be able to use like one of my sleeper cars. Mm -hmm. Um, But I need like my business isn't going to grow fast enough organically in order to get to that point. So I need investment capital. I need to kill Um, people. No. Yeah, I mean, well, that's where we're building to. But yeah, so oh, he's shit. like, okay, I, I need I need a bunch of money. And he's done, you know, well enough. This whole Lincoln thing was a big enough deal that he gets about a million dollars of investments. Into, and he uses it to form a new company, the Pullman Palace Car Company. Mm-hmm. Throughout the 1880s, he choked out or made deals with anyone who might be competition for his luxury train car business. And by the 1890s, George Pullman had a monopoly and trains are the biggest thing in the fucking world by the everyone's traveling places by train and he's the only guy that makes like the sleeper cars and whatnot he got Um, in there he got in there yeah, if you wanted to take an actual, like, comfortable train trip anywhere in the United States, George was getting a piece of that action. Wow. And he continued to innovate through every part of this period. And his innovations included the field of racism. Quote from Richard Sneeroff. 
1867, he rolled out the Delmonico, the first dining car, called a hotel car with a kitchen at its center. It could serve 250 meals a day. In 1875, he built a luxurious parlor car, which offered an upscale traveling experience. Meanwhile, his designers continuously improved heating, ventilation, and lighting. Throughout it all, the Pullman's appeal to the public rested on meticulous service. Pullman used the existing racial division of labor in hiring. White conductors collected tickets and sold berths en route to perform menial work like carrying luggage, preparing the berths for use, cleaning the cars, and providing personal services to passengers, he hired African-American porters, many of them recently freed slaves. The conductors who supervised the sleeping car porters received white men's wages. The porters received less than one-sixth the wages of conductors. Low wages kept them dependent on the tips and thus the goodwill of white passengers. Despite the servant-like position of porters, Pullman had a good reputation among blacks due to the secure jobs and relatively high income they provided. Yeah. So he's in this like mixed space. If he's one of the first people to really figure out, okay, we've got all these newly freed people. Um, how can I exploit them? Yeah. And how can I capitalize on? I mean, I, obviously I'm not surprised at this point, but I mean, yeah. it just like sounds like the real life version in the 1800s mm-hmm. of like the help. You know what I mean? Like that's what it, it is. You know? It is. And he's yeah. popular among the, or at least according to this, he's popular among those. But it's also like, well, if you were a recently freed slave, it's not hard to be the best boss they've ever had. Just yeah. to pay them money and yeah. don't own them and split their families up for profit. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be like, he's, well, this yeah. is, this guy's a pretty good boss. He's really capitalizing <laughs> on like desperation and yeah. need. And like, so it's like a border. It's like, uh, white saviory at the same time as being like evil master. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's one of those things where he is not to give him credit, as you always kind of have to in this period. He's never uh, he never uses slave labor in the period you know before the Civil War. Um, I don't think he was was supportive of it. Like, so he doesn't have that going against mm. him. You know, and a lot of a lot of real rich white dudes who get their start in the 1850s. There's some uncomfortable right. slavery but stuff it's a going choice on there. So. Only pay the them one sixth right that's that's a choice sure, you make sure you know? and it's it's a choice he makes because it's you can get away with it and he's yeah. not the reason that is because like you know he's he's but he is kind of he is one of the very first businessmen who's hiring like in white businessmen who's hiring in mass black laborers right that is pretty new in this period because slavery yeah. you know was around until 1865 in the united states and he is helping to kind of set this idea that like yeah you can you can hire black people for jobs that you and you know and, and pay them less than you would pay white people for the same jobs and that's that make yeah. that makes good business he is one of the men establishing that right yeah no you're um, right we do have to give him credit for that unfortunately yeah Not, i mean like he's a oh. good person for the times I, you know what I, I mean i don't know that he's a good person for the times he's just not a confederate like yeah. i don't know that i want to make th- that be the bar of good person <laughs> i mean it only takes so yeah little he doesn't empathy. enslave people when he yes. has the opportunity yeah. so good he on you for that money over uh like actual yeah. humanity you know yeah but, but he like does choose money over humanity do. yeah whatever yeah. he's yeah yeah i'm not i'm not trying to praise him um relatively high uh, in terms of like the wages for black laborers uh in pullman's company is a term that has a lot of wiggle room and i i not everyone i've i've seen agrees with the idea that his wages were considered high mm. i think this passage from a jacobin article gets across how humiliating this work could be for the black porters who worked on his railroad and as you listen to this 
again, remember that these were were considered by a lot of people to be relatively good jobs. Okay. Quote, working for tips, they served passengers in plush surroundings with heads bowed, pride suppressed, swallowing any words of protest at being called George, the catch-all name that denoted servility to their employer, George Pullman. Hmm. So these employees by the, the white people using the train cars just call any black person George because of their boss. Because again, we're real close to slavery still here, you yeah. know? Um, That's like, very in, interesting to me. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's bad. I mean, it's fucked up. It's just not a, spe- not specifically a racist thing that I'd heard about until this. So yeah, me either. I assume I just this happened know. elsewhere. Yeah. Did not know that was a thing. It is yeah. very offensive to just... It's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now, as we discussed in our Bernard McFadden episodes, the late 1800s were a period in which the United States was industrializing rapidly, and the consequences of all that industrialization were becoming obvious. Organizations like the YMCA were created, initially in the UK, to ameliorate the health and moral consequences of modern life. George Pullman, now rich as shit and influential, volunteered his time to help run the YMCA and other organizations that he thought might help provide an answer to the labor question. Mm. This is a term that was used at the time. I found an 1886 Atlantic article with this title throughout the Gilded Age. Um, The primary issue was this. Organized labor had existed at some point for quite a while, but the concept was still being worked out. Remember, in the 1880s, the idea that, like, laborers would organize and form unions is not an old, not a very old idea, you know? Right, right. So by the end of the 1880s, labor had gotten in the United States had gotten smart and effective enough to actually start putting some major pressure on capital. The 1880s, 1890s is kind of really when the labor movement starts coming together in a way that's actually that's able to to do stuff effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the, what's called the labor question, um, which is the title of this article I found, but is also this article from the 1880s that I found you, you hear this phrase, the labor question a lot in this period. And the labor question is this should working men have a right to dictate the terms of their employment or should capital hold all of society in unquestioned um like domination Mm -hmm. and it's actually really interesting to read some of the critical arguments um people criticizing labor um because often these people who are like no i don't think workers have a right to like organize um are you 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 get the same tone with them that you get with a lot of like quote unquote unbiased fair-minded intellectual like journalism people today like folks writing about climate change you're like well let's talk about the americans who don't (laughs) wear masks and all Uh this nonsense devil's advocate because it's my job yeah Yeah. and because if if i'm criticizing everyone equally even if the facts aren't Mm -hmm. equal then nobody can say that i'm unfair smells Um, like bill maher Uh, Yeah. yeah. So this Atlantic columnist that I found writing about the labor question spends Mm -hmm. a huge chunk of his column ranting about alcohol um, and basically saying that, like, well, workers spend all of this money on alcohol and do all of these bad things under the influence of alcohol. um, And why are they organizing to get more money when they could just stop buying alcohol? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very funny. It's today's coffee cup. <laughs> yeah. It's today's, like, you have it, to Yeah, it's money, today's avoca- avocado know? toast. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. There, there's, like, that stupid saying where it's, like, you... Uh, instead of buying coffee every day, like that's that's why we're spending all our money, like millennials or whatever. You know what I mean? There's like this. It's a coffee thing. It's always a drink, I suppose. I I believe that workers should have the right to buy alcohol and also still have enough money left over for things that aren't alcohol. Yeah, of course they're like shifting cocaine. the blame. Yeah. 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 yeah Heroin. I mean, fun stuff. GHB. Two CI. All the goodies. 
I will have to ask you about those off mic, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all, they can all be fun. So, what? Thank you, Shereen's okay. the best. That's what, that was so funny. Mm-hmm. Dude, if you were on this show, I would not be able to survive. I mean, Robert's great, but I do need the validation sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's okay, nobody ever appreciates my jokes. <laughs> Sorry, Robert, we were having a moment. I know you were. That's fine. That's we're fine. So we're very funny. Yeah, there's no one like. We have a bond. We've bonded. Uh-huh. She's the best. I'm the best. I love you. We That's get good. each other. Yeah. And you know who else is the best? This Atlantic columnist telling people <laughs> complaining oh about gosh. workers. Yeah, like like being like, why are why are they asking for more money from their bosses when they could just stop drinking? It's amazing. It is, Quote, it is very. Yeah. No. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. People hate when, when we I see over on the one side a yearly waste of between four and five hundred millions of dollars, and on the other side a body of men, the squanderers of this vast fund, complaining that they have not sufficient opportunities. We cannot long be at a loss to comprehend the true nature of the existing dissatisfaction. It is clear that labor has been incited to seek from without the relief which ought to be sought from within. The socialist theory of a paternal state system, which provides everybody with work and wages, is a mischievous fallacy. It simply (laughs) encourages indolence and dependence. The first duty of labor is to demonstrate its capacity for self-government. At this moment, its drink bill is an impeachment of that capacity. No man who spends half his earnings at a saloon can get on in the world or has the least right to expect to get on nor can any body of men follow the same course with better results wow yeah man like just, rich yeah. none of that half a billion dollars a year i spent on alcohol is rich people not not yeah. any of it just poor guys yeah just stop drinking and get more like, if you stop drinking you'll have more time to work and help us in a capitalist society you know what i was actually pondering earlier today um, when it comes to like medication that like helps your brain, whether it's Adderall mm-hmm. or whatever, or like yeah. things to make you more active, it kind of feels like society is making us like we. It all ends up like you have to for work. Like it makes you work better. It makes you like provide. Obviously, brains need it. It really helps me. But I was thinking about it in a more like sinister capitalistic way, where it's like they just want us to be better workers. You know what I mean? More efficient. Actually, just like I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it it does. And you know what else makes sense? Uh, I don't know why I keep doing this this why, episode. We're not, you're so early. I, 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 my brain's been broken by capitalism, and now all I can do is pivot to ads. I mean, the last segue <laughs> I thought was not bad, to be that honest. Thank you. The most I'm amazing. very good at that it. Was I'm like an expert. That was so America of you. An artist. You can't yeah. get so, capitalism off the brain. You keep needing to go to an <laughs> ad. I I want to keep reading from this Atlantic article you, because it's very funny. Or do you want to do another yeah. weird ad transition that no, we're not I having? No, I want to just talk about the author of this Atlantic's article, George Frederick Parsons. Um, and in this next part of the article, he ties his irritation about American drunkenness uh, with a rant about how capitalists have a right to expect that profits increase forever. And it's just the most American paragraph I've well. ever read. Prosperity is the reward of persevering, temperate, ungrudging work. In these days there is, however, a great wind of new doctrine. We are asked to believe that it is possible to succeed in a very different ways, that the less a man works, for example, the more he ought to receive, that national prosperity can be advanced by diminishing production, and many other equally hard sayings. But it may be confidently affirmed that these new theories are destined to be short-lived, and that the world will have to be managed eventually upon pretty much much the old lines hmm. yeah hmm. it's it's good 
very american honestly yeah. uh, now yeah for the record um george parsons died in 1893 and i mm-hmm. found his obituary and it blamed his death on the fact that he hadn't lifted enough uh it's very funny wait lifted like, like yeah that he, he hadn't out? worked out enough yeah <laughs> what the fuck it's very funny damn that is like subtweeting a death you know i know what I mean? like, fuck, or like fuck not you. even a direct insult it's not even a sub it's just like you can't fight back George Parsons, the author of that Atlantic article, and George Pullman, uh, the subject of our episode today, Mm -hmm. both seem to have come at the problem of labor from the same point of view. Mm. It was foolish for workers to organize rather than seek to ascend to the upper class. That's what Parsons is saying, right? Why are you organizing for more money when you should just stop spending any money on alcohol and invest it all into a business and like improve your own circumstances? Bootstraps, yeah. Yeah. And the way to do this, and this is is what George Pullman believes too, workers shouldn't organize, they should seek to improve their own individual lot so they can raise up to the middle class and the upper class. Wow. And the way you do this is you scrimp and save and you work yourself to the bone. You don't drink. You don't have fun. You don't hang out with, see your family. You don't spend any time for you. You do nothing but work and sock away money so that you can join the middle class. Wow. Or that get just rich. sounds too, yeah. too uh, relevant to our current times and how people... Yeah talk about like homelessness and uh, yeah. like, or unhoused uh, it's a disease that's existed yeah. in the united states for a very long time and oh. we need to it needs to not happen it's bad yeah. wow um i think the the that view of how life should be uh is something that should be opposed with force if necessary of course it's it's a a sin uh, to the miracle of life yeah it is and it's Mm -hmm. it's, i find it very unsettling and this happens all the time when like you hear like a terrible quote like that or you read something and it looks exactly like today it just proves that like do we ever actually change are we always the same just like a different like vessel or like a different like trimmings on this world you know like humanity doesn't actually change we're always just like keeps doing these terrible things i don't know it's just it's kind of sad and yeah it's great no it's good it's good everything's fine so (laughs) george was of the opinion that if his workers had nicer lives and lived in more comfortable surroundings ones that at least mimicked middle class life they wouldn't complain so he was like well if i can just if i can build a place for my workers to live that looks like an ideal middle class town mm. then they won't need to organize for anything cuz that's all anyone could ever want is is a comfortable clean middle class american town um and he figures if i can build a town for them i can make it so that they can't drink because i just won't allow wow. there to be bars there so like wow. i can control them and make sure they don't do any of the things because the only reason workers are unhappy is that they do things that make them unhappy and waste their money i don't need to pay them anymore mm-hmm. i don't need to treat them better all i need to do is f- make a place that I like, uh, make a place for them to live where they won't be able to do any of the things that they're going to do otherwise because they're just they're just not as, as smart as I am. They can't wow. stop themselves from from doing bad things. So if yeah. I can build a place for them to live, Lame. then they they won't ruin their own lives. Yeah. Dude, that's sounds a, like a bad time to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just like uh, how I don't know. Every rich man I feel like has a god complex, yeah. and this is a very yeah. firm example of that. Oh yes, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you could probably. I think probably if you were to get Elon Musk to talk honestly about wh- how he'd want life organized in his Mars colony, <laughs> you would get some similar vibes. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. I, I feel like he already to. feels that way. He's like, yeah. I've given all these sheep car 
cars to drive. I've changed the world. It's like that may be true, but you're still a yeah, not yet, man. Fuckhead. Yeah, <sighs> not a lot of the, anyway. Whatever. Um, so to to kind of put George Pullman and his attitudes towards his workers, this kind of paternalist attitude that he has towards uh, building a place for them and, and mm-hmm. moderating their behavior. To put that in context, I want to quote again from Richard Schneerov. By the 1880s, many reformers had shifted from personal reform through revivalism, education, and public exhortation to an environmental emphasis. They believed that by changing the social environment in which the worker lived and worked, they could induce habits of respectability, uplift workers' character, and change social attitudes. In 1879, Pullman followed closely the movement in New York to create model tenements that would offer working-class families clean and ventilated room to reduce sickness and disease and promote good morals by inducing men to stay at home rather than escape to saloons. In return, investors would receive a reasonable 7% return. Hmm. So this is his, his, his idea is I'm going to build, he's looking at these kind of like model tenements going up in New York and he's like, well, I'm going to build a town of my own. Mm-hmm. And not only will it be clean and keep workers away from vices like drinking, but it'll be profitable, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a positive return on this as an investment. Yeah. It has to be good um, for me too. I have to benefit yes. in some way. And, yeah. and like all dudes like him, when he wrote about this, Pullman phrased that as if it was like a rule of the universe quote, right. Capital will not invest in sentiment nor for sentimental considerations for the laboring classes but let it once be proved that enterprises of this kind are safe and profitable and we shall see great manufacturing corporations developing similar enterprises and thus a new era will be introduced into the history of labor it's like literally i won't do anything if i don't make money off of it yeah i will open the door for you if you capitalist of course won't don't care like capitalists have no interest in workers living comfortably or cleanly um but if you show them it's a profitable business then then everyone's on board yeah so it's like very sinister because on the surface if you don't dig any deeper it's kind of nice you know what i mean yeah yeah fine he's he's low-key helping them and like it's clean and whatever but it's just so it's just so insidious, I think, and that's unsettling. If your if your starting position is that the only reason you would help your workers and 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 give the and build a nice place for them to live is that it would profit you, well, then as soon as it's not profitable, what are you going mm, to do? Very yeah. good point. I yeah, see where exactly. this is going. Okay, so. Today, the town of Pullman, Illinois, is a neighborhood on Chicago's south side, which I am very reliably informed is the baddest part of town. But in the early 1880s, it was a 150-acre town to the south of the Pullman Car Works. So it's not part of Chicago yet, like it's Mm -hmm. a separate town in and of itself, Um, right outside of the big factory where the Pullman cars are built. Um, The factory took up nine buildings on 30 acres, and Pullman, the town, was exhaustively planned around it to be as modern as possible. Sewer and gas lines were added first so that every home would enjoy heating and water. This had the benefit of ensuring the city itself would not flood like Chicago had. Most descriptions of the Pullman town will acknowledge that it was a much nicer place to live than many of the tenements working people had endured at the time. It's unclear how accurate this is, and Mm -hmm. it, it seems in some parts to be a measure of... Uh, opinion. Pullman, right. the town, was organized hierarchically, and the people with higher paying and more prestigious jobs lived at the center of town, close to the hotel, the school, the libraries, and the parks, in nice, spacious, modern houses. But low-paid grunt laborers, the actual rank-and-file workers, still lived in claustrophobic tenement blocks. These were They just had a nice outside. So they were done up so on the outside it looked oh, like a course. nice block yes. of houses, but it was tenements on the inside. Wow. And they were newer and cleaner tenements with more amenities 
space than a lot of stuff in the city itself, but they were still cramped and not high-quality dwellings. Mm -hmm. This passage from a write-up by the University of Virginia lays out the conditions inside. Quote, The workers' houses, humble in appearance both inside and out, were monotonous and gave the impression of soldiers' barracks. They were said to be clean with an abundance of air. Most were two stories with five rooms in addition to cellars, pantries, and closets. There was indeed water from a faucet used by five families, often located in one of the small closets. There were no yards, and for those families living upstairs, no front door. Most of the buildings were constructed with brick made in the Pullman brickyards. These same brickyards contained the eyesore of the town. Four rows of little six 16 by 20 foot wooden shanties that had a sitting room, two bedrooms, and a kitchen in a lean-to. Compare all of this to the arcade and library. Despite Mr. Pullman's intentions and his desirability for the commercial value of beauty, his model town was not a real home for workers who lived there. One woman compared it to living in a great hotel. We call it camping out. Wow. So it's not really all that great no, i think like the most not. casual descriptions will say like well it was you know there were problems with it but it was a lot nicer than other and it's like no like maybe it was cleaner a bit but it was not like a lot of the people who lived there were not yeah. living in great conditions it just sounds like slavery 2.0 where it's like well not, that's kind yeah. of where we're building to so oh. Yeah, it was. It it looked nice on the outside. That it's is like, something I'm that it had. Like and a it, movie set, you know. Where yeah, it's just like yeah. a facade, and then there's and, and that's that's what a lot of people say about it. It's like it's not a home. It's a place mm-hmm. you can sleep. There's things about it that are nice, but it's not really a home. Yeah. Um. And I found a write up from the Pullman Museum that makes it very clear why people might not have been happy to live in Pullman. Quote. In 1880, Pullman bought 4,000 acres near Lake Calumet, some 14 miles south of Chicago on the Illinois Central Railroad for $800,000. He hired Solon Spencer Beeman to design his new plant there, and in an effort to solve the issue of labor unrest and poverty, he also built a town adjacent to his factory with its own housing, shopping theaters, shopping areas, churches, theaters, parks, hotel, and library. The 1,300 original structures were entirely designed by Beeman. The centerpiece of the complex was the administration building and its man-made lake. The hotel floor named for Pullman's favorite daughter, was built nearby. Pullman believed that the country air and fine facilities without agitators, saloons, and city vice districts would result in a happy, loyal workplace. The model-planned community became a leading attraction during the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 and caused a national sensation. Pullman was praised by the national press for his benevolence and vision. As pleasant as this community may have been, Pullman expected the town to make money. By 1892, the community, profitable in its own right, was valued at over $5 million. Pullman ruled the town like a feudal baron. He prohibited independent newspapers, public speeches, town meetings, or open discussion. His inspectors regularly entered homes to inspect for cleanliness and could terminate leases on 10 days' notice. The church stood empty since no approved denomination would pay rent and no other congregation was allowed. Private charitable organizations were prohibited. Pullman employees declared, We are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church, and when we die... We shall go to Pullman Hell. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's an ending to a sentence, first of all. Uh, but it's, isn't it ironic? Because you said he didn't necessarily support slavery when it actually was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like he found a loop. Like, in my head, he doesn't think this is slavery, right? No, he just of course not. I mean, like it's not them. slavery. It is not. Like, there are aspects of it that do eventually kind of verge on slavery. It's though. parallel to exploiting people and, yes. like acting like their master and all that stuff yeah and there's some of the some of the white people who protest later will compare themselves to slaves i want to 
I don't want to do that because I don't think that's fair. Um, and in part, I think why the white people at the time were doing that is that like they're pretty fucking racist. Um, of course, it's not that bad. Yeah. No, but, I mean, yeah, it's white white victimization. It's a tale as old as time. He, he's a more of a he's more of a he's more of a of a dictator than I he is see. a slave owner, right? Okay. Like that's more of the attitude is that like they live here and they they could technically leave most of them, um, but if they live here. Uh, then he's going to control every aspect of their life that he can, right? Like, there's no discussion on it. I know what's best for you, and I'm Mm -hmm. going to ensure you do it. Um, Um, Did we actually, sorry, did we take an ad break, or did we just talk about taking an ad break? No, we took one ad break. We didn't take a second, did we? Oh, sorry. No, no, we talked about it. I just want to make sure, I I don't know. Because we usually do like 20. producing, it's great. I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know what else is producing i'm just sorry Robert, no 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 Robert. continue go for it uh raytheon is making new things to kill people that, they are that's, yep that's every what's day producing yeah mm-hmm. so stay tuned to find out what those are <laughs> i'm very proud of you shireen Thank you, Robert. Sorry that I, I just like thought we just talked about it. I just wanted, I wanted to ha- make sure. Sorry, I was being I was being a producer in that moment. I was crushed it. All right. Here's ads. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. 
We're actually reopening an old case and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So, Pullman builds this town, moves a bunch of people in. And I should note, the only people allowed to live in the Pullman town are white people. Um, you, you, you cannot live there. He has black workers. They are not allowed to live in his town. Because, mm. again, it's his idealized version of society, um, which does of not have any black is. people. Of course uh, The town eventually had a population of about 1,200 Pullman workers. Uh, and things chugged along well enough until 1893, when the entire Gilded Age collectively shat its pants. The basic problem was this. <laughs> international capital got addicted to gambling on the IPOs of countries like Argentina. A bunch of these bets went badly in the early 1890s. This spooked European investors, and those investors started hoarding gold from the U.S. Treasury. This coincided with the collapse of a massive railway company and a general contraction for the whole railway industry, which had been flooded with far more money than it could ever hope to absorb and been grossly overbuilt. Um, Grover Cleveland, who started office in 1893, responded to all this by fucking around with silver, which didn't do much to allay people's currency fears. As more Americans lost their jobs, others panicked and withdrew their money en masse from banks. The economies of the Western world, such as they existed back then, fell apart. George Pullman had to fire a quarter of his workforce. Those who remained faced dwindling hours. This might have been a situation where Pullman's scheme to reduce worker unrest by building them a nice place to live could have come in handy. If he had, example set, for example, said, hey guys, I'm going to have to cut everybody's hours, but you know what? I'm canceling rent while this economic mm-hmm. crisis goes mm-hmm. on or something. Mm. Um... Or it could have at least prorated or whatever. He would have had options that he probably would have been more popular than ever. And right, his workers right. would have been like, well, shit, this is the benefit of letting a guy like Pullman be your boss and run your life is when times are hard, he takes care of you, you know. <laughs> but yeah. George Pullman could not stand the thought that one of his endeavors might not turn a profit. Wow. And so he kept rent and utilities at the same rates they'd been before the Depression while he was cutting everybody's pay. Now, Everything he actually... Everything is parallel. That, that hap- that's happening yeah. now. <laughs> well, and here's the thing that's fucked up. 
I guess you could argue, if you were looking at this from a pro-capitalist standpoint, like, uh-huh. well, he couldn't stop their rent because he couldn't afford to. He had, like, this This was a business, and, like, he it, he can't pay for everybody's rent mm-hmm. forever. It t- costs him money to upkeep the town. But he was actually willing to lose money, just not that way. So he wasn't willing to cancel people's rent, but he did take on contracts that at a loss, so that he took on contracts and he charged so little that the company lost money on the contracts mm-hmm. in order order to get workers back into the office working. So he wouldn't lower their renter bills, but he would actually lose money in order to make sure that people were still working for him. That's twisted. In yeah, a very it's fucked up, right? Way. Yeah. It's more about the ego than about the money mm-hmm. in that in that in that sense, you know what I, I mean? I want to uh, yeah, it's it's not I want to take care of my workers. It's I want my workers to still be working, you know? For me. For me. You know, yeah. that's it's a yeah, it's very interesting and uh, yep. sociopathic. Pullman hid this fact, the fact that he was taking on contracts at a loss from his labor force. His employees did not know that the company was losing money to employ them. Um, but by 1894, it had become fairly popular knowledge due to some leaks, and this led to a burst of additional unrest from Pullman employees. They were also angry that Pullman had increasingly made them pay a substantial premium for things like water and gas in the Pullman town, um, which water and gas, the local government provided those to Pullman. Like, it was a town. They should have just been available for a pretty low fee to the people living there. But the Pullman Company charged employees for a thing that was being provided by the government that those employees were paying taxes for. Isn't that cool? Come again? <laughs> it's, that's, uh... I, I have no response to that. I'm not going to pretend to be funny. I, I have no it's brain dope. power at this it's point. It's dope. Yeah. So that was not the end of the grift. As Prospect.org writes, his one giant church was too expensive for most congregations to afford his, its rent, and his ill-conceived attempt to convince all the local denominations to merge into one generic megachurch failed. His library charged a membership fee to foster his notion of personal responsibility. Workers avoided the hotel bar and the ever-watchful eye of off-duty supervisors, limiting their public carousing to a neighboring village colloquially known as Bumtown. The housing, too, was for rent only. His aim was to ensure that housing remained in good repair and attractive, and he charged higher rents to maintain them. Here, Pullman applied his usual belief that the public would pay more for a higher quality, ignoring the fact that this particular public, his employees, had little choice when his was the only housing in town. Mm. So, out of touch. He's out of touch at that point, you know? Just, I mean, it's uh, a, it's a smart... Gone. It's a smart grift, but he is, like, he is grifting them, you know? He's robbing them, basically. Um, yeah. They're paying more... Vastly more than they need to. Mm-hmm. And because they're living in this Pullman town, they can't go out and find other work, right? Yeah. Like, they're they're Gosh. out in the Pullman town. Yeah. Yeah, very twisted. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, so narcissistic he cuts, in a strange way. He cuts wages while maintaining rent and continuing to charge people additionally uh, for water and gas. He cuts wages by an average of 28% across the board, which means employees all start to fall behind on their rent. Now, you can go in debt to the company. Right. Oh um, no! And if oh, you're in no. debt to the company, Robert, no. uh, and you can also get go in debt to the company if like there's a building code violation, which you know how landlords work, right? Everything's oh, yeah. a build, building code violation, and those things are taken automatically out of the worker's paycheck. As are things if they go in debt to the company for food. So mm-hmm. workers would go negative to the company, which means they can't quit without need suddenly owing all that money, right? Wow. Like the bill immediately comes due if you stop working for Pullman. So You're forever tied to that not name forever. Quite slavery. 
But it is not as far away from slavery. Yeah, it's not as far away from slavery as it ought to be, you know? Yeah, that's a grift. When you start having employees in debt to the company and unable to quit because then they would, you know, potentially get in legal trouble for that, then you're in a real uncomfortable (laughs) territory, you know? Like, you're making a problem that only Mm. you can solve, and you're consciously making that problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's... uh, he, they, he controls too much and there's no way i don't know it just it's kind of like almost backwards the way he's doing it in my head but i don't you know what i mean like mm-hmm. he's making a problem only he can solve it and he knows that and probably they know that too and just just like uh i'm gonna stop god complex yep. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. It's all good. Everything's fine. So for a look at how bleak this situation could be for the workers, I want to read a quote from a Pullman worker named Jenny Curtis. And this is her telling her story of working for Pullman. Mm-hmm. My father worked for the Pullman company for 10 years. Last summer, he was sick for three months. And in September, he died. At the time of his death, we owed the Pullman company about $60 for rent. I was working at the time, and they told me I would have to pay that rent. Give what I could every payday until it was paid. I did not say I would not pay, but thought rather than be thrown out of work, I would pay it. Many a time, I have drawn 9 and $10 for two weeks' work, paid $7 for my board, and given the company my remaining 2 or $3 on the rents, and I still owe them $15. Sometimes when I could not possibly give them anything, because her wage was cut from $0.90 to $0.20 per section of carpet, I would receive slurs and insults from the clerks in the bank, because Mr. Pullman would not give me enough in return for my hard labor to pay the rent for one of his houses and live. So, like, employees, it's often a family business. You're all living Mm -hmm. in town. If your dad dies with debts, you take on those debts in addition to like what you have to pay to keep it's. Yeah. Wow. That's fucked up. That Mm -hmm. is fucked up. It's like Mm -hmm. forever branding people again, 2.0 with like being like, uh, and like at your mercy in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in May of 1894, the Pullman workers decided to strike for a better deal. They were not yet unionized, so they set their sights on a man who at the time embodied the hope for the power of labor. And this mm-hmm. brings us to a dude I really like, Eugene Victor Debs. More okay. commonly, just called Eugene V. Debs. He was born in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana in 1855. He was the son of a fairly well-off family. Um, uh, they owned a couple of small businesses, might have even had a little bit more money than, uh, than Pullman's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Pullman, Debs dropped out of school, although he made it to 14, and he got a job cleaning train cars for 50 cents a day. It's worth noting that Pullman quit school even earlier than Debs in the fourth grade and got a job paying $40 a month, which is about $25 a month more than what young Debs could expect to earn. Um, Mm. So that's interesting to me. Like from the beginning, I don't know, I, I guess Pullman's family probably had more money because yeah it, it Debs had a is, leg up in a way like, yeah he Debs is making like 15 bucks a month yeah. something like that uh and Pullman's making 40 bucks a month in their in their mm-hmm. first gigs out the door which I guess you know Pullman's hired by his family so oh, that yeah. does help that makes sense actually um, <laughs> that, but that's Debs, the answer yeah Debs eventually quit doing this job and he returned home to work as an accountant for his father's business again neither of these are like poor kids mm-hmm. by age 19 Eugene had joined his first union for locomotive firefighters He was the secretary, and he also edited their magazine, which he used as a platform to urge sobriety and patriotic citizenship. He was not a radical at this stage, and his trade union membership did not cause him to identify as a socialist. He did get increasingly political and was elected a city clerk in 1879 and state representative in 1880. 
1984. Debs was a Democrat, and he urged modest reforms from a broadly pro-worker platform. So Debs was a Democrat, and he urged modest reforms from a broadly pro-worker platform. And I'm going to quote from Jacobin for this next part here. By the late 1880s, Debs had started his trek away from conservative unionism. A railroad walkout in 1888 convinced Debs, who served as strike leader, that a harmonious relationship with massive corporations was impossible without the counterweight of organized workers. He also began to criticize the craft unionism that d- dominated the labor movement. Rather than self-balkanize according to job tasks, federationists like Debs insisted that workers, whether conductor or fireman, engineer or brakeman, organize under one common fold, as Debs explained in May 1893. That same year, he co-founded the American Railway Union, putting his vision of a fighting industrial unionism into practice. So the early unions are like, we're all of the guys who do braking for the train. We're all Uh of the conductors. And like, you don't have as much power when you're that kind of atomized, you know, unless you're able to work together to some extent. And Debs Mm -hmm. is one of the people who's really pushing, no, everyone who works for the railroad should be in the same union and we all fight mm. together you know wow um yeah. and the aru was kind of his his attempt to do that so larger workers organizations had existed before debs isn't the first person to do this the american federation of labor was founded in 1886 the knights of labor back in 1869 um But the idea that workers within a specific industry would organize based on that industry rather than job type was pretty novel. Um, Debs was convinced that bosses were playing different specialties off of one another, trying to get workers to kind of compete with each other rather than working together, um, and that this artificial competition was to stop workers from actually organizing together for their shared interests. When he resigned from his job working for the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, Debs wrote, quote, It has been my life's desire to unify railroad employees and to eliminate the aristocracy of labor, which unfortunately exists, and organize them so all will be on an equality. Now, the ARU was founded for him to strike back at what was effectively a union of railroad managers, which had organized to set standard job classifications and wages between different railroad companies, as well as to build a common pool of strike breakers and even an inter-industry strike fund of sorts to help railroads outlast any union strikes. So Deb sees that like workers are splitting themselves up too much while the actual railroad companies are all organizing together. They effectively have a union. Yeah. Um, in 1893, immediately after he founds the ARU, he wins a substantial victory over the Great Northern Pacific Railroad during like a, a real landmark strike. And this is the first time something like this happens that like this this broad cross section of railroad workers organize and win a fight against a major railroad. This brings new members and dues flooding into the ARU. He's he's the he's the talk of kind of the union movement after this. By June of 1894, just weeks after Pullman workers made their decision to strike, the ARU had reached its greatest extent, 150,000 members. Now, roughly a third of George Pullman's employees were ARU members, and when the union held its first convention, George Pullman's employees, like the subset of the ARU that worked for Pullman, came to the union gathering with a plan. The Pullman workers asked the entire ARU to join their boycott, stopping all trains from carrying Pullman cars across parts of the nation represented by the ARU. So these these workers for Pullman who are in the ARU are like, hey, we're going on strike, but that's not going to be enough like Mm. we want you to go on strike too we want you to refuse to service pullman cars anywhere in the country um even if you're not a pullman employee because that's going to put more yeah it's solidarity it's going to put a lot more stress on the bosses hell yeah Mm -hmm. i like where this is going i want to read from a quote from their plea to the aru 
Pullman, both the man and the town, is an ulcer on the body politic. He owns the houses, the schoolhouses, the churches of God, and the town he gave his once humble name. And thus the merry war, the dance of skeletons bathed in human tears, goes on. And it will go on, brothers, forever, unless you, the American Railway Union, stop it, end it, crush it out. People used yeah. to write more colorfully back then. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah. After visiting with workers and hearing their stories of privation, Debs decided that not only did they deserve the ARU's solidarity, but that this could be a chance to start to pull together the kind of national labor coalition that he thought was necessary to push back against the forces of capital. Still, he attempted to negotiate first. George Pullman, however, was not a negotiator. He believed he was defending his and everyone else's inherent right to private property. Workers had no right to demand better conditions from him, as the factories and train cars they labored in were his personal property. Local civic institutions in Chicago jumped in to try and urge some kind of accord, but compromise proved impossible. Eugene V. Debs and the delegates of the ARU decided to strike. Debs declared that, All shall march together and fight together until working men shall receive and enjoy the fruits of their toil. Strike leader Thomas Heathcote explained the position of the Pullman men thusly, We do not know what the outcome will be, and in fact we do not care much. We do know that we are working for less wages than will maintain ourselves and our families in the necessities of life and on that one proposition we absolutely refuse to work any longer the ARU sympathy strike was the largest declaration of labor solidarity up to that point. It still is one of like the largest examples of anything like this ever yeah. happening um, and it's completely unprecedented uh, but there were however like you limits to the kind of solidarity these people were willing to express. And those limits mostly landed on racial lines. So Debs, for his part, begged strikers to accept black workers as part of their sympathy boycott. He was like, if, if we don't take these people in too and represent mm-hmm. them too, um, then they're going, to, they're going to be used as scabs. And why, why wouldn't they be scabs? Yeah. If we won't let them, if we won't like link arms with them, why wouldn't they go work for money somewhere else? Like we're not going to yeah. help them do anything. Um, that was going to be my next question about like, yeah. if so the union at this point is all white. Oh yes. Yes. And Debs okay. is, Debs is kind of pushing and there's a lot of argument about whether, how hard he really pushes, mm-hmm. but he's kind of pushing for that to maybe be opened up, but they, the, the union does not agree to do that. Damn. So it, it's yeah. the same thing. Like you can criticize Pullman for saying like black employees aren't allowed to live in my Pullman town, but you know, it's worth noting also that the white Pullman unionized employees were not willing to let black people join their union. Like, God. It's yeah, the basically well. It's eighteen ninety four. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> of course, they're racist. <laughs> of course, I mean, but every. I mean, uh, what's his face? Debs sounds like like he's trying to improve society, but yeah. it's not possible yeah. at that point. He's he's trying. Um, he does he does a lot over the course of his life. Um, so Debs puts forward a motion to include two thousand black Pullman workers in the strike. It was voted on at a union meeting, but the majority of those present voted against it. So again, in his credit, he does he does try. Yeah. Um, the motion fails, and the strike. So the strike's only going to consist of white workers. This is deeply unfortunate, as, and also kind of ironic, because workers, when talked to by the press, kept saying things like this: "Quote: The only difference between slavery at Pullman and what it was down south before the war is that there the owners took care of their slaves when they were sick, and here they don't." Which oh my God, I don't think is entirely fair. Um, but yeah, you, you know, slavery. 
there, it's uh, look. You're not gonna find a, you're not gonna find a large mass of white dudes who are not problematic in 1894. Or That's today. fair. That's so. Initially, the Pullman strikers enjoyed enormous support from the University of Illinois. After being elected mayor in December 1893, Hopkins made the cause of the Pullman workers his own, allowed Chicago police to collect charity for them, and kept police from interfering in the strike while it remained peaceful. Indeed, support for the strikers was widespread in the city. Jane Adams, founder of the Hull House, remembered returning to Chicago on July 9th to find almost everyone on Halstead Street wearing a white ribbon, the emblem of the strikers' side. Now, the strike also benefited from the neutrality of Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld, uh, who had been elected in 1892 with strong labor support. Altgeld had pardoned three Haymarket anarchists, four others had been hanged in 1887, and issued an accompanying message in which he declared the trial in which they had been convicted an injustice. During the early part of the strike, Altgeld refused to send militia into Chicago. So the strikers have a lot of benefits, including the fact that a lot of local elected leaders are on their side, and in some ca- one case at least, pretty radical themselves yeah. which helps i think also because it's all white that helps yeah, them too it, it's it's all they're all white right yeah yeah by the end of june more than 150,000 railroad workers in 27 states had joined the sympathy strike refusing to service any trains with a pullman car which was most trains so the whole american railroad system grinds to a halt as the chicago times wrote quote some roads are absolutely and utterly blockaded. Others only feel the embargo slightly, but it grows in strength with every hour. So this raises panic to a fever pitch among national elites, with a writer at The Nation declaring the boycott an attempt to starve out society. So the Pullman strike had grown to be the sort of thing that actually did put the whole system at risk. Bosses grasping for a way to destroy this threat to their supremacy landed on a tactic that is familiar to all of us today, hyping up acts of violence from protesting workers. From a write-up in Laugham's Quarterly, quote, The effects of the strike were felt most intensely in Chicago itself, particularly as public transportation came to a halt after streetcar workers joined the strike. Violence broke out, as President Cleveland later wrote, Almost in a night it grew to full proportions of malevolence and anger. Rioting and violence were its early accompaniments, and it spread so swiftly that within a few days it had reached nearly the entire western and southwestern sections of our country. He wasn't wrong. Freight cars were derailed, engineers were assaulted, tracks were blocked, and train cars and buildings were set on fire. Now, the worst thing that happened during this riot was that a Uh mail truck was damaged, which gave President Cleveland the excuse he'd been looking for to intervene. Mm. Uh, The president claimed interference with the post was a federal issue, which it is, and used that to justify deploying 14,000 soldiers to crack heads, which is more legally questionable. But this is the justification, right? Mm -hmm. They're fucking with the mail now. I'm going to send in troops. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and this is in spite of the fact that as a general rule, the strikers would actually let mail trucks by. Um, Because they didn't want to stop people from getting their posts. They're also workers. This is just like shit gets heated, right? People are fighting in the street, like a mail truck gets damaged, you know? Uh, The national media, obviously, as soon as there's violence, goes all culture worry on the strike, calling it Debs's Rebellion and framing it as an attack on civilization itself. Now, the strike had gotten off to a strong start, but from this point, it gets hampered from a number of factors. For one thing, the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, never supported the Pullman strike. Its head, Samuel Gompers, was a very conservative man and very hostile to socialism. He believed that only skilled craft workers ought to unionize. And the fact that he and the AFL delegates didn't vote to support the ARU strike really no, like narrowed the scope of a, a, a the scope of a sympathy strike. It's why there's a potential at the beginning maybe other 
unions could get involved, other industries could get involved, like laborers all around the country could organize for railroad workers, and this would be a precedent. Um, but that's not what Gompers wants. That's not what no. the AFL wants, and so it doesn't happen. Wow. Um, now, that said, well, Gompers gets some blame for the strike's failure, the fact that these strikers themselves are pretty racist also gets a lot of blame because Pullman is able to bring in black workers as strike breakers. And the union had already told these guys, fuck you, you're not welcome in. Why shouldn't they scab, right? Normally, that's a clear moral choice. In this case... Like what? 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 What do you expect yeah. me to do? You're yeah. not organizing for me. You're not doing. You're not willing to do shit for me. Mm-hmm. You don't even think I'm a person. So this guy's offering me money. Fuck you. Like yeah. I, I can't blame the. In this instance, I can't blame you for scabbing. Right? Yeah. Like two enemies. Which is just, yeah. Yeah. Like who, what? Who yeah. What, what were they this? supposed to do? You yeah. know? Yeah. 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 No, it's fair. Very fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, labor historian Tom Gilpin told Laugham's Quarterly, quote, It's not clear that even had Samuel Gompers weighed in on the side of the ARU that the strike could have been won. Clearly, a fractured labor movement will be overcome by a united business class, especially one that has the military might of the federal government behind it, which is an important lesson there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the power of the bayonet was braced, as it always is, by the perception of profound legality. Cleveland's attorney general got an injunction from a uh, circuit court, ruled on by two anti-union judges, which prohibited ARU leaders for compelling or inducing employees from railroads to refuse to perform their duties. Debs and other ARU heads were also forbidden from communicating with subordinates, which meant Debs could no longer send telegrams to try and calm strikers down and avoid violence. Because again, that's kind of what they want in this situation is for things to go so like these these injunctions reduce the ability of Debs and other folks at the ARU to actually like organize things which means Mm -hmm. it gets more chaotic and more bad shit happens and then in early July the troops entered the field from the Encyclopedia Britannica quote worried that given the terms of the injunction he could no longer exercise any control over the strikers Debs at first welcomed the troops thinking that they might maintain order and allow the strike and boycott to proceed peacefully but it soon became clear that the troops were not neutral peacekeepers. They were there to make sure that the trains moved, which would inevitably undermine the boycott. The strikers reacted with fury to the appearance of the troops. On July 4th, they and their sympathizers overturned rail cars and erected barricades to prevent troops from reaching the yards. ARU leaders could do nothing, prevented by the injunction from any communication with the workers. On July 6th, some 6,000 rioters destroyed hundreds of rail cars in the South Chicago Panhandle yards. On July 7th, National Guardsmen, after having been assaulted, fired into a mob, killing between four and 30 people and wounding many others. Debs then tried to call off the strike, urging that all workers except those convicted of crimes be rehired without prejudice. But the General Managers Association, the federation of railroads that had overseen the response to the strike, refused and instead began hiring non-union workers. The strike dwindled and trains began to move with increasing frequency until normal schedules had been restored. Federal troops were recalled on July 20th. The Pullman Company, which reopened on August second agreed to rehire the striking workers on the condition that they sign a pledge never to join a union by the time it ended the ordeal had cost the railroads millions of dollars in lost revenue and in looted and damaged property and the strikers had lost more than one million dollars in wages wow so that's wow the yeah and won in the end it's one of those things deb's definitely like panics but also a dozen possibly dozens of people just got shot dead like yeah. I can't blame him. Like, you know, nobody... Number one, this was all new. Uh, he mm-hmm. was not on well-trod ground here. And I think any responsible person, when a bunch of people get killed, 
and you're the one in charge might rethink things, you know, whatever yeah. else we think about what he decided to do. Like, I don't know. What else are you going to do? Yeah. Eugene That's, V. Debs uh, was yeah. jailed on July 17th. Uh, he was sentenced to six months behind bars for his role in supposedly inciting illegal behavior. The time locked up was good for him. He read Marx, and while he studied inside, outside, his role in the strike was mythologized by the budding U.S. left. When he was released in November 1895, more than 100,000 people swarmed Battery Park to hear him give a speech, wherein he told them, I greet you tonight as lovers of liberty and as despisers of despotism. Debs was not a committed socialist quite yet, but as the months passed, he became convinced that the labor movement could win nothing but temporary victories until socialism unseated the barons at the very top. Two years after his release, he wrote in an essay, The issue is socialism versus capitalism. I am for socialism because I am for humanity. We have been cursed with the reign of gold long enough. Money constitutes no proper basis of civilization. The time has come to regenerate society. We are on the eve of a universal change. Hmm. Yeah, I wish that had been the case. Yeah, but, I wish. You know, a national commission was established in 1894 to determine the causes of the strike. It blamed Pullman's paternalism, his need to totally control the lives of his many employees, as being un-American. In 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court took Pullman, the town, away from Pullman, the man, and it was incorporated into Chicago. George Pullman died of a heart attack in 1897. Funeral services were held at his mansion, and with Pullman's death coming so near to the end of the strike, it's perhaps not surprising that tempers were high. George seems to have been aware of how much people hated him prior to his death, and as a result, extreme measures were taken to protect his corpse. And I'm going to quote one last time from the Pullman Center. <laughs> Sorry, I just corpse box. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. That's what we're getting to. A pit the size of an average room had been dug in the family plot. Its base and walls reinforced concrete 18 inches thick. Into this, the lead-lined mahogany casket was lowered and covered with tar paper and asphalt. The pit was filled with concrete on top of which a series of steel rails were laid at right angles to each other and bolted together. These rails were embedded in another layer of concrete. It took two days to complete, and then sod was put down. These precautions were taken to prevent any desecration of the body. An unfortunate price Pullman paid for his victory in the Pullman strike. Ambrose Bierce said, It is clear the family and their bereavement was making sure the son of a bitch wasn't going to get up and come back wow that's just so funny to just know people hate mm-hmm. you you know what i mean and just be like okay look it, yeah it's not the best but it's at least some victory that despite winning at the end of it all george pullman knew he had to bury his corpse in a fucking uh pit uh, like iron and and concrete box because yeah. otherwise people would fuck with it that's, at least there's that i mean yeah that's uh it's comical at that point mm-hmm. to just think about the way his life ended it's all it all comes back to a corpse box mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean if anything if i've learned anything from this episode robert is that humans don't change mm-hmm. everything you said basically has happened mm-hmm. in the last several years Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes me sad because people forget what they go through and history gets forgotten and rewritten until we do it again because we're dumb little sheep. Um, and this always happens. Every episode of Bastards that I'm on, I just become my existential dread has is, it becomes an endless void yes. thanks to you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. We did it. Yay. We did it. Oh, wait, is this the end? Or should I? This is the end. We're done. Oh, we're Should done. Should you okay, plug great. your pluggable yeah, screen? Yeah, you got yeah, some absolutely. pluggables? 
Oh, this is the end. Okay, I got it. Sorry. So we're still going. We're rolling. Rolling into Sorry. Oh, yeah. We never associating stop. more. This is uh, how my brain works now. I'm Shireen, and I'm on Twitter at ShiroHero666, S-H-E-E-R-O-H-E-R-O, and on Instagram, it's just ShiroHero. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> Follow along if you want to. I don't care. Well, I do. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Have fun, Reddit. I know someone will have fun with this. Yeah, have fun, Reddit. Have fun, Reddit. <laughs> I don't know. Have a have a good day, everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, fuck up a railroad. If yes. You have some time. Yeah. Like, just find a railroad and just just get your piss, anger out. Piss all over the tracks. You know. Yeah. Don't get caught. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get caught. If, if you get caught, we don't know you. Don't know. Yeah. You, you did not hear it from mm-hmm. this, and this is not going to be just on the internet forever and ever. Nope. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.